0: Well, there was a a group of uh, three men that were really trying to decide uh, how they could grow in Christ. And they were really delving into every single area of what that meant. And uh, part of what they did is they made an agreement to set aside a certain amount of money that they would just use in a special dedication and offering to God. And uh, they gathered together on what would be almost the culminating night of this kind of uh, uh, accountability experience. And and they went into a room and what had happened, it was a a fairly uh, not large room, but they had drawn a circle in it as wide as they could make it, which meant just the four corners were left out. And they each were carrying in a briefcase or a backpack, depending on what they choose to put it in, $10,000 in cash. And uh, none of the men were immensely wealthy. 10000 was a lot of money to them as it would be to you and I. And so the first man stood there and said, are you ready? And, and the other two said yes. And he, he grabbed the money and, and he just looked at it. And he said, Lord, I, I just want to know what you want to do. And I'm going to throw this money up into the air. And whatever comes down in the circle is just committed to you. And whatever goes out into the corners is mine. And he threw the money in the air. And that it floated down. And not one, not one of the bills landed in the corner. And he stood there realizing all of this money now that he had held on to was gone. And, and the other two guys looked at it. And they said, wow. So they gathered up the money. And, and the next man stepped up. And he, he just about to throw it in the air. And he stopped. He said, Lord, I... I I want to say this. I'm going to throw this money in the air. Whatever goes to the corners is yours. And whatever lands in the circle is mine. He threw it up, and just then the air conditioner comes on and blows every bill into the corners. Not one is in the circle. And the third guy's looking and he's like, Whoa. And they're all kind of like shaken by this. And they gather up the money, and, and the third guy stands there and he's holding the money. And uh, he's just about to throw it, and he says, Lord, I'm going to throw this money in the air. Whatever stays up is yours, whatever comes down. <laughs> we, uh, uh, If you're brand new to us, we're in a series studying through 2 Corinthians, and you probably landed on a fairly interesting day, uh, because we're talking about what Paul is teaching in this amazing letter to the Corinthian church, about what it really means to live an authentic Christian life. Not not the facade that's kind of masquerading out there, but to really genuinely experience God in vital ways. And we saw a lot of things as we've studied. We saw that when a person's in an authentic experience with the Lord, they have this unquenchable optimism and this unvarying success. And and they they see their lives making an undeniable impact, which I hope to get into a little bit uh, today. We saw that this life is only lived, not by works, but that doesn't mean we lack energy in it. There isn't a vitality and energy in it, but we saw that this life is lived by the grace of God. Uh, It's grace, not not our own effort that makes this. It's how can we possibly live it? It says as you begin to, to literally interact with Jesus and you begin to look on Jesus and you begin to experience him in a daily way, it transforms us, and we saw that. Uh, we saw that this causes us, Lord, more than ever, uh, a desire to be generous. And that's what we saw last week. It's interesting that two chapters uh, of this letter are are devoted to generosity uh, uh, in in the area of giving to God and taking care of others. And so I know some of you might say, well, as the church is always talking about this, well, I'm not going to apologize for that. But just let you know we're going through the series and that's where we land and hit. And uh, the bottom line is, we saw not only are we generous, uh, we need to guard against some things, what we're going to see today. And we need to realize we cannot outgive God. We cannot outgive God. Now, real quickly, next week, we're going to talk about the fact that when you're living this life, a war erupts, spiritual warfare happens. And we're going to dig into that next week. But look where we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And look what it says starting in verse 1, and we'll read 1 to 5. Actually start in chapter 8 verse 24. It goes, therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and our reason for boasting about you. Now he's talking about, you guys are about to take up this gift. You've been saving it aside to give to other churches, to take care of the churches. He says, now I want you to show the proof of your love. I want it to be something people can't miss. Verse chapter 9 verse 1. For it is superfluous for me to write to you about this ministry to the saints. For I know your readiness of which I boast about in you to the Macedonians, namely that Achaia has been prepared since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I have sent the brethren in order that our boasting about you may not be made empty in this case, so that as I was saying, you may be prepared. Otherwise, if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to speak of you, will be put to shame by this confidence. He said if they show up. And they're in this time to gather up this funds. That we were setting aside for the Lord. To take care of the church. He said and it's not there. He goes I, I would be ashamed. Because I've been telling them about your generosity. And your putting God first in this area of finance. And he says not only would I be ashamed. You'd be ashamed. Uh, he says, so I don't want that to happen. In verse 4, he goes, otherwise, if Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we not to speak of you will be put to shame by this confidence. So I thought necessary to urge the brethren that they would go ahead to you and range beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift. Now notice the end of verse 5, and not affected by covetousness. He said, I, I want to make sure you're giving and putting God first because that's what we really do. That's, that needs to be, and we'll see in a minute from the heart. But I don't want it to be affected by covetousness. But let's talk through what Paul just said. The first thing he says is this. In chapter 9, verse 2, it goes, your zeal stirred up most of them. When a, a, a gathering of Christians, a family of Christians, is faithful in this area, what happens is it, it creates an example to other people about what it means to live for the Lord, but it stirs up others. It just stirs up others. Uh, about five years ago now, I, Pam and I, we've shared about this over and over, and I probably at times you're going to go, oh, here he goes again. But the Lord really put on our hearts that we had to do something for children who are leaving, living in extreme poverty. And it takes so little for us to do something. And we just had to make a difference. And about that time, I had taken over as senior pastor of Christ Church of the Valley. And we were about 50% in attendance that, that Crossroads is today. But uh, I, I just really felt God moving and saying, you know what? Is, is we're pretty taken care of as a church. Are we going to go beyond our walls? Are we going to reach out and do something? And God began to show us where to do that. And it was Nairobi, Kenya. Now, I, I think many of you are aware there's 148 million orphans in the world today and the vast majority are not living in what we even call an orphanage they're they're in extreme situations but in Nairobi alone they're they're estimating between 100 and 300 thousand children have no one to care for them most under the age of five they're literally wandering the streets some of them are teenagers but it's just tragic and uh, we said, we've got to do something about this. And I, I began to talk to the church and said, we're, we've got to delve into it. We've come up with a, we have a, a vision of what we want to do. We have a plan for what we want to do. We're praying for the people, but we've got to kick this off in a big way. And, and a church that's probably about 50%, again, the size we are today, uh, on that Sunday, we had asked people to pray and to set aside certain funds beyond their tithe as an offering to the Lord. And, and we showed up together and we ended up taking up a $107,000 offering to kick that work off. Now, now you've got to understand that, that I was concerned that people would take their tithe money and move it over, but we found out it was the opposite. Actually, our offering was higher than it had ever been on that Sunday, beyond the 107000 and beyond what would happen in the next few weeks, it just kept going. It was like the generosity attitude just began to pervade. And that amount of money allowed us to begin to invest in a work in Kenya to those children so that it gave reality to a heartfelt cause. And people got so caught up in it. We had seven people give up their lives here in the United States to go and kick off that work. And by the way, we have a team from here that just was with them. And, and they were a part of another work that we're praying about which one we'll invest in. And I'll talk about that more later. But, but here's the thing I want you to grab hold of. is that the whole team from Crossroads who was over there watching nearly 300 children be ministered to now. 300 children taken off the street and put in homes. And over... 2,500 people are being guarded against going into lifestyles of being homeless and extreme poverty and not being cared for. And when they were walking around seeing that, I just kept getting emails and text messages saying, you can't believe what God has done. You can't believe the difference it's made. And, and, and we we just began to rejoice in that. Well, the reason I'm talking about this is, is I had a lot of my friends who are pastors saying, Chuck, don't do this because the minute you do it, uh, it, it gets to be too big for a church to handle. And, and and I said, I just think God wants us to have this other-centered mindset that looks beyond our own walls. And, and so what happened is is that began to cause this kind of incredible uh, 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 mushroom effect, uh, uh, this ripple effect. And what happened is one of my very friends who said to me, I don't I don't know if we should do this. His church got so moved by what happened. They jumped in and they begun to start another work and they went beyond what we did. They're ministering to 500 and some children and, and, and now they've you know, rescued almost 5,000 people out of extreme poverty. And so two churches just getting together. Now we're notching you know, nearly 10,000 people be taken care of and watched over, and, and have those necessities of life we always want them to have. And then another church heard about it, and now they're jumping in. And, and what happened is that just a few faithful people said, we're going to do this, and it just skyrocketed. By the way, it was really incredible because about that time, and I'm not sure the exact numbers, I think at CCB we were giving about $50,000 to missions. Well, in four years, we went from about 50000 to $700,000 going to missions. Uh, you know what? It's because, but we just caught on to what it meant to be generous and to care for others and and to make that difference. And the more you do that, uh, God says, "See, that makes a difference in lives." I was talking to a woman who claims to be an avowed atheist, and she's a kind of a family member that we want to see come to know Christ. And she actually looked at me and she said, "What difference does Jesus make?" And I said, "Let me tell you about Kenya." And by the time I was done, I'm not kidding. Pam will tell you this. She was in tears. Now, she hasn't, she, I really think that started a crack opening uh, towards God. 18 million cracks. No, I'm kidding. Uh, if you saw Sarah Pollitt, I love her. But, uh, uh, but you know what is, is? It just started something happening. And you know why? Because people who don't even believe in Jesus are looking at the church and saying, Where's your heart? Where's the the real hands on the situation? Where are you making a difference? It stirred people up. And Paul said, we need to understand that. He said, your bountiful gift, your willingness to give, your extreme generosity made that happen. But he said, I got to give you a warning in the midst of this. It says in chapter 9, verse 5, I want you to be careful not to be affected by covetousness. Did you see that at the end? Be careful. You're not affected by a covetous attitude. We saw last week, an authentic Christian is amazingly generous to God and others. Uh, And we do that in balance, and we do that intentionally, and we do it through prayer. But the bottom line is, he said, I want you to be careful not to be a covetous person. I don't know if you heard about the the three men that were gathered together to literally the deathbed of a man who was very, very wealthy. And uh, he looked at his attorney, and he looked at his pastor, and he looked at his doctor, and he said, you are the three most important people in my life right now, and uh, I I know I'm going to die. And the doctor said, yeah, it's not going to be long. And he said, well, you know what? I've been trying to decide what to do with my money. And uh, so I've come up with a plan. And and right next to my bed are three suitcases. And there's $10 million in cash in each suitcase. And I'm going to ask you guys to do this. I've been really thinking, what do I do with my money? I've decided I'm taking it with me. And they, they said, what? He said, I want each one of you to take a suitcase, and when I die, you come to my funeral, you put each of those suitcases in my coffin, and you stand there till it's buried, and I want to just have that money buried with me. They were like, what? He said, I'm firm, I'm asking you to do this. So what happened is that he died, and the day of the funeral came, and they showed up with the three suitcases and stood there, and oh, you could just see there on their faces, they just didn't know what to do with this. And then it came time for them to walk to the coffin and, and they almost had to shove these cases in and, and each of them puts their cases in and they, they seal the coffin up and they lower it into the ground and they stand there as the dirt's poured over this dead body and these three suitcases. Well, they get into a limo together to drive away and as they're driving, the, uh, the pastor says, I, I gotta be honest, I, I just gotta confess something to you. I couldn't bear I just couldn't bear to put that $10 million in with them, with all the needs in the world. So I I actually took $3 million of it, and I gave it to a children's home in a poor country. And, and, you know, I know that wasn't his wishes, but I just couldn't do it, so I only put $7 million in with them. The doctor said, man, I got to tell you, that makes me feel better because I couldn't bear to do it either. I took $5 million of it, and I gave it to a burn section for children who have extreme burn cases, and and now it's going to make a difference in their lives. I just couldn't bear to do it. And the attorney looked at him and said, I am so disappointed in each of you. I mean, I put in a check for the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) Beware of covetousness, he said. I I want you to be careful about that. And and the bottom line is, is, is we we see uh, uh, in our country today an amazing covetous attitude. Why are we so indebted? Because you know what? We've gone out and charged for luxuries in life and paying high rates of interest and put ourselves in trouble. We buy houses that are bigger than what we need because we act like we can't get by without them. I shared this in the, you know, a couple times already, but don't miss this. uh, That in 1960, the average family lived in an 1,100 square foot home with a larger family than we have today. And by the way, studies, what's called the happiness quotient, show that people were happier. Today, the average family of three uh, lives in a 2,500-square-foot home. And by the way, on top of that, we have all these, uh, 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 you know, we have these storage bin places that we rent because our 2,500-square-foot homes can't hold all the stuff that we've been out charging. We're the most indebted country in the world. Christians are incredibly overwhelmed with debt, and it goes to a covetous attitude. And the number one reason, the number one reason that a person doesn't give to God is they say this. You ready? I can't afford it. I can't afford to. And the problem is, is this horrible covetousness that just begins to pervade and and overwhelm us. And and, and I got to tell you something, kind of a a little bit of a deviation. I I just finally got my hands on a study I've been hearing about over and over. It's called the Reveal Study. Uh, It was done by Willow Creek Community Church on seven different churches. And now they're going to do 2,000 churches. But they begin to, they brought in a high-level researcher to ask where people really are in their spirituality and their commitment to Christ. And this guy in his research found that there are four levels according to what people were responding in interviews and in different kind of strategic sessions. Four levels of spiritual growth. I want you to think about that. The first level they found are people that are exploring the whole idea of who Jesus is. This is interesting. Those people may have actually said I've made a commitment to God. But, but they haven't really made a commitment. They're just kind of still exploring what does it mean to be a Christian? Who is Jesus? And, and they, they believe in him, but they're not real sure about where to go next. And so they're kind of in that, what we would call that, that infant stage of spirituality. Uh, and then the next level of growth is uh, what we call the encounter stage. Where they really begin to encounter Jesus. Uh, they believed in him here. Here they're experiencing him somewhat in their life. And they're really excited about what that means. And, and so they're, they're really beginning to start talking about like, wow, you know, I prayed and I got an answer to prayer. And, and I studied the word and things popped out. And, and I made these decisions in my life and I'm seeing God bless. And, and then the next, the next level of spirituality is what we're going to call the endeavor level. I'm going to change his wording a little. And that's when you say, you know, when encountering the Lord has now made me want to put some energy to that. And so I am making sure that God gets a, a set aside part of my day. I'm making sure that I take my spiritual gift and use it. I, I look for the significant things God wants me to do. And that's the, the, the endeavor stage. And then, then the last stage, according to what they found, is what we call the embracing stage. Now, you ready for this? This is where you embrace all-out commitment. This is where you say, you know what, nothing held back. I want everything about who I am, every area of my life. I just want to be with God. And I I know I have a father, a dad who loves me. And I want to live in a true relationship that has integrity to it. It's the authentic relationship. And in their studies, they found this categories of people. Uh, uh, This may not get you, but boy, it shocked me. Uh, one of the myths that I had been functioning under was this. One of the myths was the people who lead the most people to Christ. Are you ready? I, I, and I actually said this a few weeks ago, I think, uh, are the brand new Christians. New Christians tend to lead more people. To, you know what? We've always said that for years, and I believed it, and I've espoused that. But the study found the opposite. The study found the opposite. The reality is the people who lead the most people to Christ are these people up here. And you know why? Because they have something that other people want. Other people can spot it. They have that undeniable reality. And so the brand new Christians all excited about the Lord. And of course they're sharing. But the ones who have the most effect, the ones who report actually of leading someone across that line of faith and making the difference are people who come to a place of all out commitment. And others can look at their lives and see that they have something they don't. Uh, And and they're, they're living this out. Now, now, one of the things the study found, though, is that while well, most everybody begins this whole exploratory process wanting to get there, and they can even talk about getting there, that certain things stall us, certain things keep us from progressing. And, and, and one of those things, are you ready for this? They called it addictive behavior. Addictive behavior. And as they began to study, they found people saying, I, I'm dissatisfied with my relationship with God, and I'm not sure about it anymore, and, and I'm not experiencing it the way I want to, even if they started on the progression. And when they found that out, and they began to dig into those people's lives, you probably wouldn't be surprised. They found that the reason they're not there is obviously they haven't embraced an all-out commitment to God. And usually because there's something in their life they just haven't been willing to let go of or change. So an addictive behavior that hurts a lot of people is uh, Pornography. And it was scary how many people, it was scary how many people who say, yeah, I, I committed my life to Christ. That's still a, an area I haven't gotten rid of. And, and, and they wouldn't even honestly admit it's addictive, but they would say, I know I'm doing this over and over, and, and I, I know I made a commitment not to. Uh, another area would probably not surprise you would be an alcohol addiction or a drug addiction. Now, you would agree with me that it would be literally impossible to have that be a part of your life and be over here. Now, you ready for this? The biggest area of all, uncontrolled spending. Now we go, oh, that's not an addiction. Oh, yeah, it is. You see, it's an addiction. The fact you can't say no, the fact you can't stop, the fact you can't live on less than what you make, that's a sign of addictive behavior. Uh, uh, Our society is is really in trouble today because so many people overextended because they have an addictive behavior. And, And that keeps people from getting there. Isn't it interesting that Thousands of years ago, Paul said, beware of a covetous attitude. Beware of that that hurts you. Beware of that that enslaves you. The idea that I have to have more to be happy. I have to have more to be happy. And every single one of us know deep down that's not true. You know, know, I have said this before. If you get a nice car, awesome. You know, that's a good thing. And if it's a fast, really hot car, then we're going to celebrate with you for a little bit. But you know what? Is it really going to make you happier? Uh, I, I am not putting down this particular brand of car, but if you had asked me a few years ago, what is the one car I would want more than any ever? It's a Hummer 2. I still think they're the coolest car on the road. I really do. Now, some of you don't, and some of you are going, no, I'm an environmentalist, and you know, maybe you are. I don't care. I like the car. And, uh, and I'll tell you why I don't have one. I can't afford it. And uh, one day, though, I was standing at Costco getting gas, and I turned around, and a guy pulled up, hopped out of his Hummer. I'm looking at that car, and I'm thinking, man, that's like a man's car. And I got my Buick next to it, and it's like dwarfed, and and, and I'm looking at this guy, and, and he's all excited, you know, kind of almost whistling. And then I look over, and I said, do you love the car? And his face dropped. He said, no. And I go, why? He goes, I can't afford to keep it filled up. And as I kind of get done filling up my tank and he's still going and going and going and, and I said, is it that bad? He said, I had no idea. And what he thought would be such a blessing in his life is an incredible curse because he right now is upside down. He can't afford to sell it. He told me all this. Poured right out. Can't afford to keep it gassed up. Insurance is higher than he thought. And, and he doesn't enjoy the car. Now, some of you could have a Hummer two and enjoy it. And, and that's okay for you if it's within your means. But he catch what? Why did he get in trouble? And this isn't a, a put down. We, let's just get honest. Why did he get in trouble? He bought something he couldn't afford. We call that covetousness. He thought that will make me happy. That's covetousness. Well, I just need. And Paul said, beware of that. Because he's not, what he's saying to these people? If you've read the chapter with me, he's saying, I'm sending people to receive the gift that you are setting aside for God. But the one reason it may not be there is because you're covetous. And that attitude keeps you from being up here. Now, I don't think there's probably very many people in this room today that would say, I am intentionally deciding I don't want to be in an all-out commitment to Jesus Christ. And I don't think, but you know what, I'd say a lot of you say, I want that. You might not use those words. You'd say, I want to experience the Lord. I want to have him moving in my life. People who were surveyed in this area said, you know what, I really do experience God's presence every single day. As a matter of fact, here was kind of an interesting thing, but difference between this level and this level. This level says, I, I, I have quality prayer times. This level says, I feel like my day is a constant interaction communicative discussion with God. I feel like everything I do is embraced with prayer. I feel like that I just sense God's presence and leading and moving and guidance. I, I sense that he, I just start, start talking to him and he, I feel he's prodding me. The, the, the people who are here, this was kind of exciting, is there's probably, and, and you guys got to guess what the percentage is that came out here. It's probably any of you who knows, it's 20% of people who attend church. That, that kind of makes sense, right? 20% of people who attend church say, you know what, I'm really living what I read in the Bible. I'm not feeling like it's less than. I'm not, actually, I'm a little overwhelmed about how incredible it is. About 20% of those who, who show up on a, a Sunday, if we were the typical church, would say that. I hope we're not typical. By the way, uh, Jesus wanted that to be the typical lifestyle, though. But, but it's an all-embracing, all-encompassing, never letting go. And that's why he says, I want you, don't get caught up. Don't get veered off course. And, and Paul says, beware of that. You know, I, I want you to do this. Now, now look back at chapter 2 uh, and look at now at verse 6. And notice this, he's going to say this. He's going to say, God will reward you according to your faith. He says, I, I, this, we don't want to get un, misunderstand why we give. But he says, I want you to know, you cannot outgive God. You, you cannot do more to God than he'll give back to you. And it says in chapter 9, verse 6, this. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. So that always having all sufficiency in everything. You may have abundance for every good deed. As it is written. He scattered abroad. He gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now now don't miss this last two lines before we stop. Now he who supplies seed to the sower. And bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. And increase your harvest of their righteousness, you will be enriched. Now notice this, verse 11. You will be enriched in everything, but notice why. Is there, are we enriched so we can have more? Are we enriched so we can sit around going, look at all the things I have. Look at the nice, it's not wrong to have those things, but notice why we're enriched. God says, because you give to me and you sow to me, I'm going to enrich you and take care of you. Why? For all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. Now, don't miss this. Uh, if you notice back at verse 8, it says this. It says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so, why? So that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have abundance for every good deed. God says to me, he says, Chuck, you know what? I want you to be faithful in giving to me. And then I'm going to pour back more in your life. And, and notice why. So I can give more to God and give more to others. That, that the mindset isn't, oh, okay, I'm going to give to God so I can get more. The idea is I'm going to give to God so I can give more. Uh, ideas that I want to be able to touch other people's lives. I want to be able to bless other people. I want to be able to offer more to the Lord. And the Lord says, if you get involved in this process, this amazing equation takes place. You can't outgive God. It's just what we need to understand. If you were here last week, we saw what I think is one of the most amazing equations within all of Scripture. It's this it says, in great affliction and overflowing joy. And, abund- and desperate poverty equals overflowing generosity. In other words, when people go, well, you know what? When I finally get out of this, then I'll give to God. Well, that's not accurate. God says, you know what? Those who are really in tune to me might be having times of great affliction, but there's such a deep joy in knowing me. And even in the midst of deep poverty, there's this overflowing liberality. Now, here's an easier equation. He who sows sparingly, reaps sparingly. He who sows bountifully, reaps bountifully. You know, Pam and I, one time, we, we decided to plant pumpkins, and I planted three pumpkin seeds. So how many pumpkin vines came up? Two. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually got more than that. But you know what? I, I, I wasn't going to get five or ten, right? But you know, the next time we went out there and planted like 25 and arranged them correctly, and you know what? They pretty much all came up and we, we got an overabundance. The, it's, it makes sense. What you plant is what you're going to receive. What you sow is what you're going to reap. It actually says in Galatians 6, if you sow to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. Don't be surprised at that. But if you sow to the Spirit, you reap life. God says, if you sow to me generously, I'll cause you to reap bountifully. And he says, this is what you need to understand. But it needs to be purposed in your heart and needs to be, you're ready for this word, according to your faith. According to your faith. I want to ask you to look at verse 8. I want to ask a question. Let's just wrestle it. Do you believe verse 8? Do you really believe it? Verse 8 says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have the abundance for every good deed. Do you believe that God will take care of you? I, I mean, We need to wrestle that through. How much are we ready to embrace this call? And it can't be under compulsion. And and honestly, I need to be careful. I'm not trying to put guilt on anybody. I'm asking you to wrestle through, do we believe? I think some of the scariest verses in the Bible are the ones I'm about to read. Matthew 13, 58. And Jesus did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. In other words, Jesus said, I was going to do far more, but they just didn't believe. Uh, The same situation is talked about in Mark 6, verses 5 and 6, where it says he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And and, and now, it not that God couldn't have just said, well, you know what, forget whether you believe or not, I'm going to do it. No, he could. But have you caught what this is teaching us? The Lord says, I am going to reward you and bless you based on your willingness to be obedient. God's love is unconditional. Don't miss this. His blessings are conditional. You can't study scripture and not see it. And he said, I want you to be aware of covetous attitude of hanging on. I want you to have a generous attitude of giving. And when you do that, I'm going to pour back in your life and give to you. And I'm not going to let you get in trouble. He says, I want you to know that. Now, someone goes, well, you know what I'll do then is I'll start giving the my tithe to the Lord. And then I'm going to see if I get blessed. Well, I need to warn you of something. You have to make this an all-embracing way of life with the Lord. So just, just giving to God is not going to, on, in and of its own, create this promise. You've got to also follow his ways. In other words, you can't be covetous. You can't be materialistic. You know, if I write a check for 10% of my money and I go out and charge everything else up, still I'm in bondage. I'm still disobedient. It's the idea of an overall all-embracing obedience to the Lord that we're looking for and that God is calling us to. And then it says that it needs to be done Cheerfully. It needs to be done purposefully. Verse 7, look at that. It says, eat which one must do as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. It needs to be done because we say, Lord, I love you. I trust you. I can't wait to give to you. That would be the great, great desire we had. God loves us when we're a cheerful giver. Uh, uh, The other night, um, what happens in our life, this is the way it works, is on Tuesday and Wednesday, my assistant uh, uh, has Pam watching her children. And I talk about Noah and Maya all the time. And so every Tuesday and every Wednesday, uh, I got to say this, when I get home, our house is a disaster. Uh, Noah kind of owns the place and he pulls out every toy and we have these bins of toys and his goal is to get every single one of them out and, and Pam uh, loves every moment of it. And, but then Thursday's our clean day. I, I come home and the house is clean you know, and Friday's clean, and Saturday, you know, and and so that's kind of how we live our life, and I, I, and what happened is on Thursday, uh, Pam almost hops out of her chair, and she said, I get to watch Noah tomorrow, and, 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 uh, you know, she's already had him two days, but, but something came up on Friday for Talia, so Pam goes, we get him, we get him, and, and she goes, let's take him to Disneyland, and so now we're like, oh, and I got to be honest with you. Man, I'm laying there at night thinking about taking him to Disneyland, putting him on the horse, you know, the carousel and taking him all over. And, and I, I couldn't have been more excited. And that day, you know, I had some things to do in the morning, which I love getting to do. But then I, I rushed home as fast as I could. And we opened the door and he's looking and he's picked up enough. He starts out the door already, you know, one and a half years old. And we throw him in the seat and we take him down there. And we have the time of our lives. How many rides did we ride that I wanted to ride? None. Do you know that whole day was all about him, and I've never, ever had more fun at Disneyland in all my life. I always love to find new parents, and I'll tell them these words. If you're a new parent, I've said this to you probably. I've said Christmas is never going to be the same. You're going to have the most amazing Christmases you've ever had. Why? Because when you get a child, all you care about at Christmas is what you get them. You know, now I got to be honest. Christmas comes right now, and Pam and I—we don't really care about giving much to each. At least I don't. Towards her. no, uh, so you know, we don't talk about it. What, what do you think we talk about? Well, we're going to get our grandkids? We're going to get. A, do you know why? Because it really is true. It is better to give than receive. Now, how many? Isn't that true? And you know what? When you discover that, it's amazing. And so the Lord says, Chuck, I'm going to bless certain things in your life. And he says, that's so you can give more to others. And when you trust me in this and you believe me in this, he says, I'm going to start giving to you more than you can imagine. And God says, do you believe it, Chuck? Do you believe it? And I want to be honest. Even when I was first in the ministry, I'm not sure I did. I, I, I was a covetous, I held on, and, and when I finally did, I did it grudgingly, and, and now today, it's, it's the opposite, you know, and, and again, I'm not perfect, and I have lots of failings in my life, but, but I've learned that we can trust God. It's kind of like what happened in 2 Corinthians, or Second Kings chapter 4. Last week, we looked at Elijah and a poor widow, and he, he caused a uh, 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 flower to just keep coming, and food to just keep coming, because she trusted in him, and she put God first, well, Elisha, his disciple, goes to another town and a widow runs up to him and says, Elisha, my husband was a faithful servant. He helped you. He was with you. And he's died. And my son, my children were about to be sold to creditors. And, and, and what are we going to do? How are we going to make it? And Elisha said this. He said, go out and get every jar you possibly can and get your hands on it. And I want you to bring it in and make sure you don't get just a few. Now, I think this is interesting. Make sure you don't just get a few. And she rushes out and she gets every jar she can. And and she gets them there and she only has a little bit of oil. And he said, you just pour the oil and fill every single jar. And she's pouring and pouring and pouring and pouring. And then she looks over her son and says, bring me another jar. And he says, there's not another jar. And it says, the oil quit pouring. Now, now, did you catch that? God says, I am going to enrich you for all liberality. I am going to do miracles that you can't believe. Now, how much are you going to trust me with this? Because the more you trust me, the more I'm going to pour back. Again, we're not talking about foolishness here. It needs to be done intentionally. It needs to be done purposefully. It needs to be done according to Scripture. Uh, It it needs to not be, even though the emotion of it is the joy, it needs to be not an emotional cause. You know, I I already know this church well enough, and I mean this in a positive, complimentary way. That I really believe if I stood up here and said, we have this amazing need, I think this place would respond. And that's not wrong. But you know what I'm saying now is I hope our response is faith with feelings that follow, not feelings that cause us to be motivated. And and, and that's what we're talking about here. Intentionality, purposeness. and, And that's what the authentic lifestyle calls us to And not letting life destroy us. Not letting us say, well, you know, how are we going to make it? Luke chapter 12, verse 25, Jesus says, And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If you then cannot do a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spend. But I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory... did not clothe himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass and the field which are alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you? You men of little faith. And do you not seek what you will eat or what you will drink? And do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your father knows that you need these things. But seek the kingdom and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your father has chosen gladly to give you his kingdom. Jesus said, just trust me in this. Paul says, you know what? The outgrowth of this ministry is an amazing liberality. Again, verse 11. And you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which is producing a thanksgiving To God. Now now let's read on. And notice what he says here in verse 12. For the ministry of the service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints. But is an overflowing through many thanksgiving to God. Because the proof uh, given by this ministry. They will glorify God for your presence. To the confession of the gospel of Christ. For all the liberality of your uh, contribution to them and to all. While they also by prayer on your behalf yearn. For you, because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Now, what's this indescribable gift? Did you catch what it is? That we get to give. And all of us who know the Lord, we say, thank you, God, I get to give. It's a joyous time to do. It's something we, we love. And it's the supplying of the saints. You know, all of us who give, it affects in multiple ways with ripple effects. And God says, I want you to grab a hold of that. And by the way, let me just tell you some places we're going as a church. You know, I think most of you, that we are in the midst of being a key part of starting a literal village in Peru for women who are abused and have nowhere to go. And they're going to be able to take their children and go to a safe haven place. And they're going to be able to actually have a vocation uh, training. And they're going to be taught about the Lord and cared for. And we're going to do, and we're a huge part of this. And so what's going to happen is, is this begins to kind of start going, is that they're literally going to be women Who are lying there beaten and bloodied and battered. And they think, is there anywhere I can go? God, can you help me? And God's going to go, yeah. And he's going to provide a way for them to get there. And they're going to stand there and say, there's a church in California. I never met those people, but they made a difference. My kids have a safe place to sleep at night. And I've got a way to get up in the morning. And I can understand what dignity is and how to be affected. And that's a country where there's no place providing that kind of shelter. And we're going to be doing that in the coming years if the Lord waits. We are going to continue giving to Dr. Ajay in India. And I don't know if you've been reading in the, in the newspapers, but in the area he's in, a horrible, horrible uh, backlash has happened towards Christianity with literally Christians being killed, churches being burned, uh, people being driven from their homes. And, and we want to continue pouring in to, to help. But you ready for this? 40% of all malnourished children in the world are in India right now. And by the way, what is the Indian government doing? Nothing. What does Hinduism teach should be done for those children? Nothing. What does God tell us to do? Everything we possibly can, and we're going to. And right now, we're going to join with Ajay and reaching out and and seeing children rescued from sex trafficking and slavery and malnourishment. And and there's going to be thousands and thousands of children because of our partnering with him who will be rescued from the streets. The group coming home from Kenya is going to bring news of which work we join but, but the bottom line is that some of the most extreme poverty in the world exists right now in Nairobi, and there are going to be children rescued out of that, and we are going to pour ourselves in in meaningful, real ways. Our special needs ministry is going to get a new boost and, and we see not only those kinds of needs happening, we see there's a city called Lake Elsinore near us that we need to reach out to. And, and in the coming year, our goal is to plant a video campus there and, and so that we can bring the gospel into a church, uh, into a community of over 40,000 people. And we're hearing right now that, that people are begging for a church out there. You know, we need to understand that. Is there a vital ministry going on? Well, we're having people begging for it. Matter of fact, Brian Dunn's kind of getting ready to lead out in that work. And he went out and looked at two high schools, both of which right now are open. And one teacher he met started to show him around. And she looked at Brian and said, when are you going to start? he said, I'm not sure. And she said, well, when you do, I'm coming. The hunger is there. And we, we need to see ourselves being the kind of light that God wants us to be. Why? Paul said when we're faithful in this area, it magnifies uh, in a way the, the very love of Christ. People can look and see it makes a difference. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5 verse 16, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And the more we're faithful in this area, the more we look beyond our walls, the more we begin to reach out, God says, look what's going to happen. Look how I'm going to uh, uh, cause you to be a part of lives happening. You know, I, I, don't, I, I think that what I'm about to say is emotional. So let me just tell you right up front, I think it is. But it doesn't mean it's not true. You see, I, I take very seriously what we do as a church family. And I think you do too. We want to be the church, the family that God wants us to be. And I really believe when I stand before the Lord, he's going to look at me and hold me accountable for how I've led here. And uh, he's going to look at all of us and he's going to say, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was in prison and you visited me. And uh, we're going to say, when, Lord? And he's going to look at you and say, oh, Crossroads. Crossroads. Crossroads, didn't you know that when Arnold went from your midst, prayed over and sent out by you and went into a prison about a month and a half ago and preached the message and over 40 prisoners gave their life to me, that Crossroads, you did that. That when, when your team was in Kenya and they found a seventh grade girl who literally was out witnessing and she got so sick she could barely make it and you made sure she got medical care, you did that. When that woman in Peru was holding her children, wondering if the next time the door opened, she'd be battered and attacked again. And she said, God, please help. Crossroads, you did that. And you might say, did we? And the answer is, yeah, we did. We're doing it together. And here's the exciting thing. You ready? Any one of us could make a difference. But all of us together, it's going to be an earthquake of compassion. It's going to be an eruption of love. And by the way, we're very, very committed that we don't just do something for a moment. It's not the Band-Aid on the wound. And uh, God's going to say to us, you did it. And I really believe that where we're headed right now, I really believe this, he's going to say, well done. And we're going to say, God, I I had no idea. Sometimes we don't know, but us together, we're we're getting ready to to make even bigger differences and bigger differences. And, And we're at a time we can see that happen. But do you know what's going to be the most effective part of all of this? Is when every single one of us are up here. I want to tell you I have a goal and I don't think it's an outlandish goal. My goal is 100% of our family is able to stand at this level of spiritual interaction with God and commitment. I I really do. We want to help. If you're down here and exploring, then we want to have you meet God and encounter Him. If you've encountered Him, I want to help you move to that area where you understand the kind of things you need to do to grow. But my plan, my prayer, is that before the Lord comes, every single one of us are in this place. Now, is that a place of perfection? Let me be as honest as I can. No. I think when you get here, you realize how imperfect you are. This is why people who get here don't judge. And we go, oh, oh. We go, well, then how is this a higher level? You ready? Because it's a more connected level. It's a more intimate level. It's, it's, it's where you just say, God, you are real and you do love me. And, and Lord, now you, I, I look at you and sometimes I'm a man of unclean lips and God goes, that's okay. I, I knew that the whole time. And I want to cleanse you and help you. Father, some of my thoughts, I just can't believe I think. And, And by the way, here's the difference. When you're up there and you think those thoughts, it's like, okay, Lord, I'm sorry. Right away, you you know, you're just you and him. God's just kind of looking at you and you're like, oh. But you know what he always looks at you with? Eyes of love. And he sees who you can be and he sees what you could do and he sees the life you're made to live. And that's where we all want to be. I want to ask you to think this through. Where are you right now? Are you at a place where you're kind of exploring and wondering, well, how do you cross the line to get here? The answer is prayer. You make a commitment to God. You, you say the words, I'm not holding back. I commit. I'm ready to go. Will you be immediately there? No. It, no, it's a growing process. Some of you are here. How do you get here? Well, you need to start endeavoring, doing some spiritual disciplines and moving forward. But, you know, it also starts by saying, God, I know I need to grow. I, I want to get. And, and people who are here. you.